Good evening. My name is Alan Shore, and um, I am a Jewish believer in Jesus the Messiah. I was born actually in the Holy Land, New York City. <laughs> and now I live here in, uh, I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is a long distance. But I will tell you what, there are some distances in life that are much farther than miles, much farther even than light years. And the distance that I had to travel from um, my upbringing in a Jewish home in New York City to be able to be with you here tonight to proclaim that Jesus is my Lord is a very, very long, long distance. So, though I've traveled tens of thousands of miles in the 25 years that I have been with Chosen People Ministries, that is um, like an inch compared to the other distance that I just mentioned to you. So, how many of you have a Jewish friend? Hey, many of you. I hope all of you have at least one Jewish friend, you know who. And, and if you don't, I would uh, suggest you see Pastor Dan after the service, and perhaps that situation can be rectified, you know, because you never know who's going to walk in, right? So, speaking as a Jewish believer who has served with Chosen People Ministries, as I say, for 25 years, I am keenly aware of the cultural and psychological obstacles that make it difficult for Jewish people to even consider let alone accept the gospel message. And yet, I'm living proof that um, with God there is nothing that is impossible. And that's why when I receive a request from a pastor to bring a message on Romans 1.16, I am thrilled. Thrilled because I have skin in the game. And what I mean by that is because just about every Jewish guy who was brought to faith in the 1970s, as I was, was brought to the Lord by someone like you. A loving, non-Jewish believer that took the risk of reaching across this great, deep abyss of misunderstanding and confusion and distrust to reach out to this troubled young man, as I was at the time. And if I can inspire you to pray for opportunities for the Lord to use you to share the gospel, I will have carried out my not-so-hidden agenda that I have here with you this evening. And if you tell me, I don't have any Jewish friends or neighbors or relatives, uh, we sometimes marry into your families, we're everywhere. <laughs> but, you know, if you tell me that you don't have these people in your life, my prayer, my reply is pray that God gives you some because you'd be surprised at what can happen. Or uh, talk to me afterward because I know where you can find bushels of them. Bush. <laughs> Chosen People Ministries has wonderful short-term mission opportunities for people at all stages of life. So as a small boy growing up in a Jewish community that was surrounded by the dominant Christian culture, I always felt somewhat in, at odds in a variety of ways, spoken and unspoken. I was made to understand that we were different. And I tell you, growing up in the 1950s as I did, I must have known the number six million before I could count the six. And yet, 
The image of Jesus was not to be ignored. I awoke to the pealing of the bells of the Catholic Church every morning of my life, and I remember a moment I could have been more than six years old, standing on the subway station with my mother on one side and with one of the sisters, the nuns, and they all wore full habits in those days, and I was nose to nose with the crucifix that was hanging from her rosary, and I was like, I'll never forget, you know, who is that twisted silver man and what is he doing on that cross? What, what is that all about? And although I don't remember being explicitly told so, in many subtle ways it was communicated to me that he belonged to someone else, not us. So we read the New Testament in the school, public school assemblies. Can you believe this? That, that, that they read the New Testament in the public school assemblies when I was in grade school. And I went to a lot of the Jewish kids I was in school with in public school. We went to, I went to Hebrew school with uh, after, after regular school. And I remember when the one time the guy held up and finished reading the passage and said, let us pray. And I didn't know what to do. I started to bow my heads. And one of the older kids from Hebrew school looked at me and went, Oh, okay, no, all right. <laughs> Yet there were other feelings and emotions that I associated with the figure of Jesus, especially at Christmas time. There seemed to be a largeness of spirit, a forgiveness, a tenderness in the air with the carols and the movies that at times seemed quite foreign to the experience of my young life. And yes, the deep, dark secret of my Jewish childhood was that childhood was that I loved Christmas carols, absolutely loved them. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. What are these Gentiles doing singing about Israel? I, I couldn't get it. And then later on, we figured out we we tumbled to the fact that Jesus was Jewish. What a confusing fact in our ambivalence on that, on, on about that. On the one hand. You know, he had been one of us. The Gentiles couldn't even get a religion without consulting us. <laughs> and yet, on the other hand, there was this danger associated with a relationship with Christians. We must beware of his followers at whose hands Jews had suffered such vile treatment over the centuries. I mean, who needs that? So, imagine my surprise. When I first opened the New Testament and found the Gospel writers telling of a Jewish Jesus, teaching from the Jewish scriptures in the way that a Jewish teacher would teach in the first century, and a, a church that was at least composed solely of Jewish people meeting in and around the temple. And the very first verse of the very first gospel, that in the very first chapter uh, we meet in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, places the story of Jesus, the moment we meet him, firmly within the context of the covenant promises that God had already begun to unfold to the children of Israel. So Paul's bold assertion in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is to the Jew first and to the Gentile resonates to this day with undiminished power. Because I will tell you, if the gospel is not to the Jew first, then it is not the gospel. 
But how can Paul say this in light of the fact that so many of his beloved kinsmen had turned a deaf ear to his message? So the question of Jewish rejection of the gospel is not a new one. In fact, it is the central issue that the Apostle Paul addresses in the book of Romans, especially in the 9th through the 11th chapter. And I hope you'll see with me how Paul uses the, this question to usher us into some of the most profound home truths that there are about the role of the church, the role of the Jewish people, and the restoration of creation itself. So a little background written to the fellowship that he did not found and had never visited. The book of Romans is the most extensive, closely reasoned exposition of the gospel that Paul produced in his lifetime. You always sort of got the feeling that for once his desk was clear, you know, he turned off the cell phone and said, don't bother me, and, and sat down and wrote this wonderful, wonderful letter. So although the origin of the church at Rome is obscure, we don't know how it got started, Acts 2 references visitors to Jerusalem from Rome at that memorable Pentecost. Both Jews and proselytes, that means Jews and non-Jews, who were coming to hear the word, even then, who had heard the preaching and beheld the signs and the wonders of the Spirit, now, the size and the significance of the Jewish community in Rome is well established. There's an ancient synagogue that uh, they unearthed that is still there. It's, there. it's there to see. An early reference in church history tells us that the church at Rome had embraced the faith of Christ, uh, although according to Jewish ritual, without seeing any of the mighty works of the apostles. However, the history of the Jewish people in Rome had not been without difficulty. They had been exiled from the city on more than one occasion. And the expulsion of the Jews by Emperor Claudius in about the year 49 is actually briefly mentioned in Acts chapter 18, where it says that Paul's beloved Aquila and Priscilla were among those exiled from Rome during that time. So as a consequence, the Jewish presence in the Church of Rome was removed for a time. And perhaps it was restored at the time of Claudius' death in the year 54, that's five years later. Perhaps they were allowed to come back earlier. But one of the effects that this exile may have had was that the baton of leadership passed from the Jewish elders, passed from Jewish hands, to the non-Jewish believers who were forced to step into the gap, to step up, and to, um, and to function as leaders. And when the Jewish believers were finally able to return, that they may have found that their earlier position of authority had been occupied in the meantime. And therefore, as the renowned scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it, there was perhaps a tendency on the part of some of the Gentile Christians to think of their Jewish brethren as poor relations mercifully rescued from an apostate nation. So this extended section in Romans 11, in which Paul emphasizes the importance and the election of Israel, may be in part a corrective to this faulty line of thinking. So it's a pastoral issue. 
But it's a larger issue at stake as well. It is the issue of Jewish unbelief itself. Because if Christ is indeed the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures, the only scriptures that there were at the time, well, why do not the Jews as a whole believe it? Does not their rejection of the message of the early Jewish believers to them, their rejection of it, undermine the credibility of their message? So one of the reasons Paul wrote was this, as I say, pressing pastoral concern of vital importance, namely the relationship of the Jewish and non-Jewish believers in the church at Rome. And another reason is more theological in nature. It's the question of the widespread unbelief among the Jewish people as a whole. And he tackles both these issues, as we shall see, he weaves them together in a way that has no less than cosmic implications that affect us even to this day. And not incidentally, these passages reveal the passion and the depth of Paul's own commitment to the lost sheep of Israel. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. Those are pretty strong words. So this Jewish rejection was no small mystery to the early believers to whom Paul wrote. For who, if not the Jews, were equipped to recognize and respond to the word and the work of God? And if Jewish authority turned its back on the credentials of Jesus the Messiah, there could only be two causes. Either they were right to do so, and the gospel is a fraud, or else, or else, or else, or else their rejection was part of God's unfolding revelation. Could Jewish unbelief itself be a validation of the unfolding will of God in history, as Paul perceives it? And it is precisely this argument that Paul advances, and he does so by enlisting two potent symbols that we will come up to in just a bit. The first is the symbol of the remnant, and the second is the symbol of the olive tree. And through them, Paul addresses the present disturbing unbelief of Israel, but the future restoration upon which so much else hinges. So for Paul, this rejection on the part of the Jewish people was not a cause for doubt or confusion. Indeed, it was nothing less than an affirmation of his faith. Why? because Paul knew it to be a recurring theme throughout Israel's history. Paul knew Israel's stubbornness firsthand. And he knew of God's unfailing love for Israel, a love that Paul knew would eventually bring about the right outcome. Paul uses the image of the remnant to illustrate the promise of the restoration of Israel. And although it's not possible in this brief time to do justice to the development of the idea of the remnant as it unfolds in the Hebrew scripture, it is most evident that although Paul uses the concept in a, in a unique way, 
he did not manufacture it himself. Rather, he drew upon an already existing way of understanding Israel's role in relation to God, in relation to itself, and in relation to the world. And as he explores this mystery of God's calling and election, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as sand in the sea, the remnant will be saved. So this was not an unfamiliar image. And as the national fortunes of Israel had worsened, the idea of a saving remnant amidst the survivors of God's chastisement, the, the faithful few, the exiles longing to return to Zion, became a sign of hope that nothing less than the restoration of God's people and the fulfillment of kingdom promise would be the final outcome. So too at the present time, Paul writes in Romans 11, 5 and 6, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. For Paul, the disbelief in Christ's messianic credentials among his fellow Jews that was so troubling to some of his fellow believers was part of a by now not unfamiliar pattern. And this pattern, which weaves the themes of revelation, disobedience, chastisement, repentance, and restoration that permeate Israel's history exist within the much larger framework of God's will. And this is why Paul can cite so many instances from Israel's past. Because although what God has done in Jesus is joyfully new, Israel's response is sadly not. So therefore, far from casting doubt upon the truth of the gospel message, Jewish unbelief is actually a confirmation of it. To Paul, the history of the Jews is like a train leading to one destination, the kingdom of Jesus, the son of David. And when his presence came into view, the Jews who refused to believe were like passengers that chose to disembark and, 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 and strike out in their own direction. And meanwhile, the Gentiles were allowed to embark. So the inclusion of these Gentiles, these late arrivers in God's kingdom, on the same faith basis as believing Jews, bears witness to a gospel whose ramifications far outstripped the vision of its first adherents. In short, it came as quite a shock. We read in Acts 10, there's Peter in the household and Cornelius, and he's sharing the gospel with them. And before he knows it, the same Holy Spirit that fell upon the, the Jewish believers in the second chapter of Acts has now fallen upon these Gentiles. And, 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 and Peter has to come and explain himself to the council in Jerusalem and say that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I couldn't help it. <laughs> I couldn't help and just say, well, the Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it just sort of comes off of our lips. But, you know, back in, to, to them, you might as well have said the kangaroos and the koalas were filled with the Holy Spirit. Because nothing like this could ever possibly have been imagined. Well, the early Jewish followers of the way soon came to see what Peter had discovered in the household of Cornelius the centurion. 
The Gentile believers were a visible reinforcement of a movement away from righteousness based on law or ethnic and religious origin to the righteousness based on faith in Jesus, the justification that is conferred upon those who place their trust in him. And yet Paul understands very well that the inclusion of the Gentiles is both a fulfillment of prophecy and a sign of future redemption. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I hold out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What then is the fate of the Jewish people? Has God placed the children of Israel in his rearview mirror, as so many of us, so many would have it? Or is it God's will that today, at this moment, and throughout the world, that they hear the gospel? It is literally one thing or the other. So Paul's heartfelt question have they stumbled so far as to fall is our question also, and so is his resounding response, by no means. For in this confident cry is the heart of Paul's purest understanding of the triumph of the will and the way of God. It is a supreme determination that uses the deception of Jacob, the sin of David, the bloodlust of Herod, the indifference of Pilate, and even the original disobedience of Adam and Eve for the purpose of fulfilling his own unsearchable designs. It is a sovereign resolution that the promise to turn disbelief of the Jewish people into the very instrument through which they must eventually be restored. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Well, this brings us to the, the second illustration, the olive tree in Romans 11, 16 to 24, which demonstrates the relationship of the new fellowship of faith to the covenant promises which preceded it. You know, if I were the Pope, <laughs> I'm working on that. Now, if I were the Pope, I would get rid of the term Old Testament altogether because it's so misleading. If what you want to call it anything at all, you would call it, uh, it's a long title, the former covenants that are now expanded and fulfilled by the new covenant of Jesus, the Son of God. Well, Paul's image of the olive tree and its broken and grafted branches serves well, for it enables us, it enables him to make provision for both Gentile inclusion and Jewish restoration, both together, each a part of the other. And the key is Paul's understanding of the root. The root of the olive tree 
is the undergirding presence and covenant promise of God upon which both Jew and Gentile depend upon. It does not change. And far from being unexpected, the present temporary blindness of Jewish people, apart from the faithful remnant of promise, is revealed to be a part of the plan conceived by God from the very beginning. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So, this idea is far more than simply a rationale for Gentile inclusion uh, and a rationalization for Jewish incredulity. It reveals Paul's understanding of Jewish disbelief and Gentile faith as elements pointing the movement of history toward its apocalypse. Paul sees the vexing problem of the Jewish rejection of the gospel in far-reaching terms. It occurs within the framework of nothing less than the climax of history itself. So the hardening of Israel is not an, only an opportunity for Gentile acceptance. It is not only the fulfillment of God's promise of old to Abraham that through his descendants all the nations shall be blessed. It is also a prelude to the final restoration of all things. So it's no mistake that Paul refers to this as a mystery. But the sense of the Greek word mystery is that which was formerly hidden and is now made known. It is a word that is heavy with apocalyptic weight. And much more might be said about regarding the, what the full number of Gentiles signifies, another apocalyptic concept, or the meaning of all Israel will be saved. But for now, it's sufficient to say without question, the hardening in part of Israel, the conversion of the Gentiles, the restoration of the Jews, the return of Jesus, the fullness of the kingdom, and the restoration of creation itself are all so inextricably bound together as to be a part of one mighty movement of God's will. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And the preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people is an integral part of this plan. As Romans 11 and 11 say, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. For you see, God has laid upon you the charge of being the instrument of blessing to those through whom you have been so richly blessed. That through you, the restoration of the Jewish people that the scripture teaches will trigger the end of this present age will come. Therefore, I conclude that far from being a peripheral concern, Jewish evangelism 
ought to be as it was for Paul at the forefront of the church's engagement with the Great Commission, not as some afterthought, even if it exists at all. And I'll tell you what, I think, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I have preached in about a thousand churches in the last 25 years. Evangelical, Bible-believing churches. And I go out to the foyer where they've got the mission map with the stick pins. You know, you've got a blue stick pin in the Philippines, a green stick pin in India, a purple stick pin in Mexico. And I say, keep those stick pins there. Don't get me wrong. Those stick pins belong there. But when I look for stick pins in Israel, when I look for stick pins in New York City, you know, when I look for stick pins now in Germany, where there is a reconstituted Jewish population of about a quarter of a million people, and I don't see stick pins where those places are, I say something is wrong. If I had a whole other hour with you today, I could, I could make the case that, the guy, that, that, the, that to the Jew first is the keystone of the Great Commission. And if you want to look at what a church's mission priority is, look at the budget that the mission committee advances. And if you don't have a line item for Jewish evangelism somewhere, there is something wrong. Well, not only is there a case to be made for Jewish evangelism as the keystone of the Great Commission, there's also a lesson to be learned from withholding the gospel from the Jewish people altogether. And it's the lesson of the miner's canary. Ever hear of the miner's canary? You know, these old-time miners would bring a canary down into the, down into the depths. And if, the, if the, canary, the canary is sensitive to toxic fumes that are invisible and they don't have any odor, and when the canary would keel over, then the miners knew, time to get out of here. <laughs> because the canary warned us. So... I submit to you that Jewish evangelism is the miner's canary of the evangelical world because in light of what I hope we have seen, when we withhold the gospel from the Jewish people because it's too frightening or inconvenient or politically incorrect or it makes our head hurt to, to present it to them, who else are we willing to withhold it from because it's unfashionable to stake a claim to the truth of the gospel a truth that is based upon the word of God in these politically correct times, woke times. And who after that are we going to withhold the gospel from until we don't even have a gospel left to proclaim even if we were so inclined? Well, it's something to think about. So let me say this in conclusion, my friends, that the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 are as true today as they were on the day that they were written. And the presence of Jewish believers such as myself and the outreach evangelism of Chosen People Ministries are a sign to the world of the unfolding purposes of God. We are a sign to the church to give heed to the root that nourishes us all. We are assigned to other Jews that the arm of God will soon be outstretched as of old. And although they do not know it yet, our unbelieving beloved kinsmen are in their own way a sign of the very same thing. 
So the charge that Paul has placed upon the church to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy with the reality of God's love and truth of the gospel has not gone away. And I want to remind you of that. If we believe that Paul's words are living words, then you folks are perfectly placed. You have this marvelous opportunity to become a part of this glorious and redemptive work of bringing the good news to the, of the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. As we say, bring the original message back to the original messengers. How? Well, by partnering with me, the mission on whose behalf I come to you this evening. I can't tell you how many people, and I'm going to hang around after we conclude, how many people come up to me, I've got a Jewish friend, I've got a Jewish cousin, uh, someone I know married a Jew. Um, how can I share the gospel with them? And Chosen People Ministries has an embarrassment of riches in terms of um, how to, what to do, what not to do in bringing the gospel to your Jewish friends. And the first, most important, simplest thing is to pray for them and create trusting relationships and pray to be discerning for the moment that may come when they uh, ask you, what is it about you that um, makes you tick? So I pray that as you respond to this call, that you will be blessed beyond measure. So please pray with me. Gracious Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. come under the covering of your loving and protective presence, knowing that whatever the future may hold for us, you are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that your love for us is unfailing, and your faithfulness and truthfulness endure forever. B'Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So, um, you know, as Alan was sharing going through this, uh, something jumped out at, for me that I've never really seen before. Thank you. Sorry, getting emotional here. Um, the Lord's grace and compassion is so wonderful. The tools he's used to give us salvation. Romans 12, 1 and 2 one of my favorite verses, we're told by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices. You know the rest of the verse. But uh, at the very end of verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right after this unfolding of God's will in the, uh, the Jews, unbelief, providing a way for us as Gentiles. And now for us to prove God's will for them is our being living sacrifices to him and a call for us. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. So um, you have these brochures. There's some information in there. Um, yes. Yep, Seth has, uh, will be back there. 
um, books and some other things. Um, if you want to sign up for, uh, I think, a newsletter, some other information, there's information in here. If you would like to uh, give an offering, um, a love gift for Chosen People Ministries, um, please do so. You can write a check out, make it out to Chosen People Ministries. Um, put it in the box, just that one back there, and then we'll gather them up and we'll send them off um, and everything. But like Alan shared, please pray for them and uh, take the opportunity you have if you know somebody who's Jewish to share the gospel with them. So thank you guys. Thank you.